on this past Friday. And it says this on the same day, Jesus went out of the house. And what did he do by the sea? He sat by the sea and great multitudes were gathered together to him that so that he got into a boat. And what did he do next? He sat and the whole multitudes did what? Stood on the shore. Now, I just want to let you know that I don't know how we got the tradition where the, the preacher stands and the people sit. But if we were really a New Testament church, what we'd have, I'd have a chair up here and you'd all stand through the rest of the message. What do you think? You think we ought to change that tradition? Oh, man. Oh, ye of little faith out there. Could you not stand with me but for an hour? All right. I got to do this twice every day. Well, there's all kinds of things in the Bible you would see if you just read it. Uh, but actually, this is this is an encounter where Jesus begins to preach. He's preaching on a boat. I don't know if he got seasick or whatever. He made the sea calm and didn't move at all. But he speaks to them about a sower and a seed and a soil. And you might notice we've got some things that were dug up this past week. We're putting a new tree in there. And and uh, that's the part of the curse. Things things die and things stay alive and whatever it might be. And some of you might be wondering, why, why did we take that tree out? That's what I thought, because I like that tree. And then someone told me, well, if you look at the back of the tree, you'll find out that the tree was dying. And, and, and as we think about that, there are things in life that live and there are things in life that will die. There are things that respond to what God is doing and there are things and people that don't respond to what God is doing. And in this past uh, reading on Friday, it's, it's a sobering message for anyone who preaches and actually for every believer who, who tries to share the word of God to others is that is there is a person goes out and sows and you could call that the preacher or the Christian who speaks for God. There's the seed and that's the message. So you got the messenger and you got the message. And then you have the, the people who are listening to the message. And he talks about four types of soil. Three of the soils respond, but do not respond deeply to the point where it really develops life within. And there's one soil. That listens to the word of God and God makes that person a fruitful person. Now, as we encounter the word of God corporately together on Sunday and when we gather together in small groups and look at God's word together and as we spend personal time with God's word, there's nothing wrong with the message. There's nothing wrong with the one who sent the messenger, the message to us, which is Jesus. Our response is what makes the difference between whether that word of truth makes a difference in our lives. If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But God doesn't want to simply be hearers of the word, but doers of it. Let's pray one more time. Father, I pray as we look in your word this morning that we might, whether we're sitting or standing in your presence, that we, we want to be good soil. We want to eagerly hear your truth so that it might make a difference in not only what we do, but what we believe and what is the focus of our life. Fathers, we finish up this series in, in the book of beginnings that, that tell us how you began that, that journey for us to discover the true God. That we might really have a heart that's open to the truth you give us this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, turn now to the first book in the Bible. We look at the first book in the New Testament, which is the book of Genesis. Let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 45. And the message I've entitled this morning is, how big is your God? How big is your God? 
for some, when you think about their God, their, their God is a, is a very small God. It's very small because really they don't think a whole lot about him. They don't really think he's actively involved in their life or anybody else's life. If there is a God, somehow he might be asleep at the wheel. We've talked about us being asleep at the wheel when God tells us to pray or speak with him. But, but that there's a God who might have started it all if there is a God, but now he's left it to kind of function on its own. And then other people, they have a big God and they see that God is involved in every part of their life. But sometimes what we do is we kind of bring God, whether he's big or small in our mind, uh, to a, a dimension that doesn't doesn't hit where we live. And what I want to do this morning is look at the size of your God in relationship to, to how you're experiencing him and how you're living with him and on his plan for your life. As we as we look at this, we're going to be seeing this through the the lens of of God's chosen people, Israel, and, and we're going to see it through Jacob or Israel and, and his sons, and then particularly at Joseph as well. And, and we're going to see some of them initially had a very small God, and another individual had a rather big God, and then there were those who began to learn what that meant for them. How big is your God? Hopefully, He is bigger. In fact, hope you realize he no matter how big you think he is, he is bigger than you think. Now, what I want to say to begin is, is this way, is that as we think about God touching down to where we live, is that that God is bigger than your sin and other people's sin. The backdrop of what we have in Genesis chapter 45 is that that Joseph has been playing, <laughs> playing with his brothers a little bit. And, and, and the reason he's been playing with them because he wants to he wants to discover where their heart is. He, he knows that he is they have thrown him into slavery and he has been now in Egypt for 22 years. And as he's been here for so long, he's wondering, where is their heart now? And he begins to discover that because Judah, if you remember from last week, we really didn't discuss it a whole length, a length of time. Judah comes to that point because they had come back to the land and they had been pleaded with by their father to make sure they bring back his youngest son, Benjamin. And Joseph says that Benjamin has to stay. And Judah said, I will stay in his place. You can enslave me. You can even take my life. But if we do not bring Benjamin back, our father will die. Well, Joseph now is overwhelmed with emotion. In fact, let's pick up the story in Genesis chapter 45, beginning with verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brother. And he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Uh, this last uh, Saturday. In fact, let me, just, let me just say a word of praise to, to our, the elders in our church. Some of you know them very well because you're involved in the life of the church in a variety of different ways. And you've kind of seen them serve in so many different ways. But whether it's Bill Mann or, or Steve Johnson or Tony Jones or Elmer Hayes or Warren Williams or John Aldridge. Uh, these men have a real heart for God and a heart for the word of God. Uh, some of you had opportunity a couple weeks ago to hear John preach out of Genesis and did an awesome job. And this last Saturday, he, he spoke uh, to the men about real men don't and fill in the blank. And um, the issue there is uh, real men don't mess around sexually. They don't commit adultery. Uh, even there, God's grace is sufficient. But sometimes we think real men don't cry. Well, obviously, Joseph was a real man and he wept 
immensely and deeply because now his lost brothers, he had discovered the heart, were now found. But now we have the reaction of his brothers. Look at it in verse, begin with verse 5. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Now that's a rather uh, tame way to say that. They were terrified. They were terrified because, first of all, they were afraid of Joseph before they even knew who he was. Because he was a man of great power, and their lives were in his hands. And, And they didn't know a whole lot about this man who had such power. But now they knew the man who had such power was the was the. The, the brother they had betrayed. And they were wondering, what is he going to do next? And verse 4 says this. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. And in fact, I, I'm trying to picture that. Uh, you know, some of you might be, be seeing the Bible on the History Channel or whatever it might be. And I don't think they show, show this particular perspective. But when he said, okay, all of you come near to me. I can just imagine they're all looking around saying, okay, you go first. No, you go first. Who's going to hit first? I mean, they're all kind of wondering who's going to step forward because they were terrified. They couldn't even speak when he identified himself. And we know this is what they were feeling because Joseph responds to this. He says, uh, please come near to me. And then he says, then he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And they're thinking, we thought you might have forgotten about that. Verse five. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. How big is your God? How big was his brother's God? Their, their God was, was so small that they, they were afraid now their sin that had now been fully found out was that which is going to totally condemn them. And, and what Joseph is about to teach them is a principle that we all need to learn, that God is bigger than our sin and anybody else's sin. And listen to those words that must have really struck them to the heart. I don't want you to be grieved or angry with yourselves about what you have done. What, what is at the heart of the Christian faith? At the heart of the Christian faith is that everyone in this world is needy. Everyone in this world is desperate in need of a help helper. Everyone in this world is sick and needs a great physician. And everyone in this world is drowning and needs a savior. Everyone in this world is lost and needs to be found. Everyone has a sin problem and only Jesus can deal with our sin. And when somehow your concept of God is that because you are so unworthy, you can't come into his presence, then your God is too small. Now, now God, God is not pleased when we sin, but he's not surprised. And when we sin, God is able to deal with our sin and he and our sin does not limit him. He tells his brothers he, he, in fact, again, if you don't know the, the history of this, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. He was a teenager. He, he then is thrown into prison. He's now, when he, when he meets Pharaoh, after he gets brought out of, out of prison because he was able to interpret the dream, he was, he was 30. There were seven years of, of, of feasting, prosperity, and then there was two years of famine. He's now 39. 
He has been in Egypt longer than he was in the promised land with his family. And he does remember that he was sold into slavery because of their sin. And he tells them who did it, do not be angry with yourself or overwhelmed with grief. Because God is bigger than your sin and anybody else's sin. See, we come to God because we need to come to him. And you're you're in great company because everyone else needs to come to him. It's interesting. He responds back with some phrases that I just kind of I want to I want to highlight. I remember when I was in college, there was a friend of mine who decided he wanted to do a. A uh, that, that's before we had the computers and Internet studies and stuff like that. He said, I, I'm going to use a concordance, one of these exhaustive concordances. Have you ever seen one of those exhaustive concordances? They're like they're like this. OK, he says, I, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to trace every single time in the Old Testament, and New Testament that 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 God uh, is mentioned. But he said, I'm going to narrow that a little bit. But anytime it says, but God, I want to look up that verse. And it was hundreds and hundreds of passages. In these next three verses, we have but God, for God, and and God. Why is God greater than our sin and anybody else's sin? Uh, listen to what he says to his brothers. Look at verse 5. He says, don't, don't be overly grieved and angry with yourselves. Why you sold me here? And then he says in the latter part of verse 5, For God sent me before you to preserve life. How is God specifically greater than our sin and anybody else's sin? For God is able... To assure us of our preservation. You know, sometimes, sometimes we wonder that, that, that our lives are dependent upon someone else's good deeds or bad deeds as it relates to us. We need to understand that God is much bigger than that. And that God is the one who either preserves our lives or allows our life to go down a different direction. And, and so as, as he was speaking to his brothers, he said, the only reason you have a future is because God allowed you to sell me into slavery. And I'm now in Egypt. And now I'm the one who God gave the dreams to, gave that interpretation to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is not only preserving the people in his land, but also yours as well. So indirectly and directly, your sin allowed me to come to Egypt. And God, for God, is now able to bring perseverance to your life. And then he goes on in the next verse. He says this. For those two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God, and God sent me before you to preserve posterity for you in the earth. So God not only is the, the, the one who is able to assure preservation of life. He's also the one who gives the, uh, the ability to establish posterity of life. Now, the older I get, I begin to, to kind of look back at my life and look maybe to the, the smaller future of my life. And if Jesus does not return, I'm thinking, what, what kind of legacy am I going to live, leave? You know, what, what kind of impact is my life going to make on, on my family and the people who know me well and the churches I've served? And, you know, what, what kind of difference will my life make? And what God is trying to tell me and to anybody else, the posterity of my life, the impact of my life is the one that God directs. 
Actually, the word posterity here is the idea of remnant. He says, and God is the one who establishes the remnant that will be faithful to him. See, what happens in the future is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon God. And God is the one who brings preservation, and he's the one who brings a posterity, the legacy of life. Now, either I can cooperate it or not cooperate in it, but God, God's remnant, the legacy that God wants to leave will happen. So you got for God, you got and God, and then you got but God. Look at verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. What, what principle would I get here? But, but God is the one who establishes your position in life. You, you, ever, you ever have, when you were, some of you are still that age, but have you ever had that question, what, what are you going to be when you grow up? Anybody ever have that question asked of you? You ever ask that of your kid? Yeah, well, what are you going to be? What are you going to do? And I had all kinds of dreams. You know, I was going to play for the L.A. Dodgers. You know, I was, had all these, all these dreams of what I, what, what I was going to be and what I was going to do. And, and there's nothing to have a dream. There's no, there was no reason to try to pursue a dream. But, you know, God is the one who's really going to establish your position in life. Can, can, you man, can you imagine Joseph when he was a 17-year-old? What are you going to be when you grow up? Well, you're going to be the father to Pharaoh. You think that was on his agenda? You think that that was the farthest thing from his mind? But see, God is a big God. And whether it's a position of prominence or obscurity, God is the one who preserves your life. God is the one who who establishes posterity or a remnant or a legacy. God is the one who, who will ultimately put you in the position of life he wants you to be. You are not limited by your sin and other people's sin. Now, we can, we can take some detours, but God is not limited by our sin or anybody else's sin. Can I give you a couple examples of that? One more of a personal one and then more kind of more of a global one. But Alice, uh, my wife, had opportunity to, when we were in college, uh, befriend... A, a little little lady named Debbie Stone. And Debbie uh, was a paraplegic. And I say was because she's now in heaven and she's no longer a paraplegic. But she befriended her and had opportunity to lead her to Christ. Now, you look at, there's, a, there's kind of a story behind how she became a paraplegic. But, uh, but we look at this singular life that you would say was so limited and was limited somewhat by the sin that's in this world. But as I look back at her life and compare it with my life, she probably impacted more people for Christ than I ever will. Because she wasn't limited by her physical condition. How about Johnny Erickson? Some of you are familiar with her. She's the one that's, that's spoken around the world. She's restricted to a wheelchair. She has very limited motion. She... She can do artistry, and she can speak, she can sing. But how, how did she get restricted to a wheelchair? Did somebody do something to her, or, or did she do something? Well, sometimes she was at a lake, and she decided to go swimming. She didn't check the depth uh, of, a, of a lake, and, and she dove into it without checking the depth, and she landed on her head and compressed her neck, and she became a 
paraplegic because she did something foolish. Was she limited by her foolish, you could even say sinful act? Or did God take that to mold a life message around her to impact people for Christ? How big is your God? As I try to put myself in sometimes the position of people in the, in the Old Testament or New Testament, and we see, we see here in all the glory stories, but man, it would have been so easy for Joseph simply to give up. But his God was bigger than what his brothers had done to him. And later on, Judah found that, that God was bigger than the sin that he had committed with Tamar and the line he had done about his son. What does the Bible say about sin? God hates sin. But we need to understand the difference between how God looks at the sin of our lives and how the evil one looks at our lives. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it says that, that, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And see, the difference between what God deals with our, how God deals with our sin and how the evil one deals with our sin is that when, when we feel that we are worthless... That's the message of Satan to us. That, 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 we, that we are just garbage to God because of what we have done. That's the accuser of the brethren making us feel worthless. When God convicts us of sin, he doesn't accuse us, he convicts us. It's for the purpose of changing our lives. This needs to be changed. You need to repent from your, your sin. There's a sorrow that ought to lead to repentance. God, God is telling us, don't go that way. It's, it's destroying your life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer this morning and you're feeling condemned, that's not from God. In the vocation that God led me into, that wasn't my dream as I was growing up. Uh, even after I grew up, I wasn't my dream. It kind of kind of drug me into it. it. Is that you know sometimes when I'm around people and you know I'm kind of challenging people or exhorting people or encouraging people, kind of pushing people, pulling people, whatever my thing. And and they say, man, why? You seem like you're always trying to put me on a guilt trip. I said, well, that's what I why I went to seminary for. I got a degree in putting people on a guilt trip. Okay, uh, you know if you're feeling you know worthless, that's not from God. If, if God has is, is put the laser beam on something in your life that needs to be changed, that, that's from him. Because God doesn't condemn us. He changes us. In, in 1 John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John. We're not going to get through this. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John really speaks about God's attitude towards sin and, and what our response and attitude should be about sin. 1 John 1. It says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar, and the truth of God is not in us. And so, first of all, we have to acknowledge that we do sin. But then he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What, what's the message of God about our sin? He's bigger than our sin, and what he wants to do is forgive us of our sin, and to cleanse us from our sin. He's not our accuser. He's our advocate. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. God's ne- desire is never for us to sin. 
But when we do sin, verse uh, latter part of that verse, he says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation or the satisfaction or the complete uh, forgiveness for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And this is why the message of Easter and the message of the cross is to be given to the entire world, because that's why Jesus came. So this morning, as we think about how big is your God? It's not in terms of how you would diagram him in a picture. But is God big enough for your sin? Is God big enough for the sin that others have committed against you? Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is the advocate of the brethren. God wants us to experience him fully where there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We confess our sin, we repent from our sin, and then we follow after him fully and completely. I don't know if I could have been a Joseph. You know, all that, all that you did to me, Those 22 years I've been in Egypt and not in the presence of my father and my youngest brother. Don't grieve over it. Don't be angry with yourselves about it. He could have said and probably met within that, you know, recognize that was sinful, repent from it. But God is bigger than your sin and anybody else's sin. Well, the story continues on. This is where we're going to rapidly <laughs> move from here. God, God is bigger than your sin. God is bigger than you can imagine or believe. Look at Genesis chapter uh, 45, verses 25 and 26. And we're, we're just going to summarize some of these points this morning. But in Genesis chapter 45 and 26, the, the brothers go back. They go back to the promised land. They go back to their father. And they, and they begin to tell him all that had transpired. And, and now this is a story that... Is, is too good to, to be true from Joseph's perspective. And this is the, the commentary we have on Genesis 45, verse 25 and 26. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. He has been grieving for him for 22 years. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt. This person that has had power over us, has been giving us food, but, but wanted to bring back Benjamin uh, to you. He is alive. What was... Uh, Jacob's response and Jacob's heart stood still because he did not what believe them. Uh, Are there some things in your life right now that, quite frankly, it's it's getting kind of hard for you to believe? Uh, There are some things that you're struggling with, maybe some people that you know that are struggling with some things and and some things you're wondering about the future of America or where it might be. And you're, you're just wondering, is God still in control? Is there anything God cannot do? For Jacob, he could not imagine that his, his, his long lost, and as he understood, dead son was still alive. In your life groups this week, you're going to look at that with the same response of the disciples when they heard about Jesus on Easter. <laughs> Those women, they don't know what they're talking about. They just get emotional about everything, you know. <laughs> It seemed too good to be true that Jesus actually rose from the dead. God is much bigger than you can imagine. In fact, that's what Ephesians 3.20 says. God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that you could ask or even think to his glory. How big is your God? Is he bigger than your sins and those who have sinned against you? 
Is he bigger than you can even imagine or think? Is he able to do that which you just can't even imagine him to do? And then thirdly, is God bigger than the questions you have of the future? This is a fascinating section in the the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter uh, 46, we we have at the end of 45, they convince him that, that... that Joseph is alive, and, and now, now he's in a position where he doesn't know what to do. Maybe you've said, okay, I, I'm convinced God is bigger than I think he can do, but I, I, don't know, I don't know what God wants me to do. And when that happens, if you're not sure what God wants you to do, you ought to ask him. And so this is what happens. Look at Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God uh, of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said to him, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Now, I can't impact this because of the time I've spent on the first point. But you know, it, it, what's interesting about here is that you need to realize, too, in terms of this point where God is working with his people, this is the beginnings. This is not the end. The book of Revelation is the end. The book of Genesis is the beginnings. Is they don't have the backdrop of, of what we have, this, this entire book. And so when God revealed himself, he had to reveal himself pretty pointedly and graphically and personally to those he was leading. And when you look at the life of Jacob, and I think he had eight visions uh, where God spoke to him directly because he wasn't always the best intuitive spirit-bound person to figure out what God was doing. And whenever he was to move from a place, God revealed himself. When he left his uh, Isaac and, and Rebekah, uh, he encountered God, uh, you know, in that, that ladder that went up and down, you know, uh, Jacob's ladder, and God pointedly said, hey, I'm going to go with you to this new land. And when he left that land, after he'd been in, working for his, his wives with Laban, you know, God revealed himself powerfully. And then when he got caught up in Shechem after that, monstrous thing that horrific thing that his uh, sons did then god revealed him there you get got to get out of here god directly spoke to him and, and see what was happening here is jacob was wondering I, i'm confused now I, i'm supposed to be in the promised land i'm not supposed to go to egypt and god said look at no this is this is part of my plan i want you out of here now Probably none of us are going to get a vision like this from God, knowing what our future is. But what we need to understand is that God is bigger than our fears about what might happen next. I was kidding with some people right before the service, and they were saying, hey, you didn't wear green today, you know. I have my olive green shirt on, all right? And we were thinking about in the greeting time, we'd say, okay, if you shake hands with somebody who doesn't have green on, you can pinch them, all right? Um, You know, St. Patrick's Day is today. You know, but, but, I, but I asked the question, I said, well, I, I don't think anybody ought to be able to pinch somebody unless they know something about St. Patrick. Now, most people think St. Patrick is all about drinking beer and having a lot of fun on his day. <laughs> I, 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 you've missed it. You have horribly, horribly missed it. And in fact, if St. Patrick had a, a different name, his name would be Joseph. Because when he was 16, he was living basically in the Great Britain area. He was captured by some, some, some uh, seafaring uh, marauders and taken from his homeland to Ireland 
and enslaved for six years. He had a family, and he was born, what they think, around 385, and um, the church was still in his formative stage, and a lot of things were happening spiritually within God's program. But his uh, dad was a deacon, and his father was uh, a leader in the church. My grandfather was a leader in the church, probably a priest, and, but it had, not, it had never sunk in on him. His faith was nominal at best. But when he was put in slavery, God shook him up. I think it was John who was, who was talking about, you know, God's megaphone is pain and suffering. When, when things aren't going as well as we would like them to go, that God gets our attention. We either respond in faith or we respond, respond in bitterness. Well, Patrick comes to faith. And when he's about 22, he's able to escape and go back to his homeland. He, he's so gracious to God that he decides to study for the ministry and becomes a pastor for 20 years. At age 48, and at age 48 during that period of time in, in world history, most men were dead. But he decides that a half part of his life, he said, I want to do something with my life beyond pastoring this parish. And so he decides that he's going to go back to Ireland and be a missionary the only missionary they had ever had, and spread the gospel in the, in the place that he had been enslaved in. And God broke out a spiritual revival in that place because Patrick had a heart for lost people. When you celebrate St. Patrick's Day, it's not about simply wearing green or, or in Chicago, did you hear about that? They just, there was, there was some, some boats and they dumped green dye in the, in the river lake over there, and it was green for a few hours. Or don't be like the, the governor of Maine who decided that on St. Patrick's Day he would allow the bars to now serve alcohol at 6 a.m. in the morning. Think about who St. Patrick was. A man who had been enslaved, who had been sinned against, and God used that to capture his heart went back to serve where he had been, and then said, I need to go back to a lost people who know nothing about Jesus. That was his future. And I'm sure when he was imprisoned by a, a tribal chieftain of the Druids, he was wondering, will I ever get out of here? But God uniquely used that to make him the person that he became, not only his homeland, but in a dark world that needed to know about Jesus. And Jacob, is, as he's now moving back, he's, he's now convinced that this is God's plan. He's not disobeying him by going into Egypt. The, the final point I want to share with you is, is simply this. Is God is bigger than any name you think you're making for yourself. It would be interesting to, to, to tell the story in any depth. But as Jacob goes to Egypt, he's kind of a beaten down man. You know, he's thinking, I'm supposed to be the father of a great nation. God, God worked in my grandfather, Abraham, my, my father, Isaac. And who am I? 
he describes himself in, in Genesis 47, 9 and 10 that as the Pharaoh speaks to him, he says, well, well, tell me about yourself. Well, my, my years have been few and they've been evil. Now, I don't think the emphasis was sin there, but I think he was saying in comparison to my, my father Abraham, my, my grandfather Abraham, my father Isaac and myself, it's been so much hardship. Plus, in terms of length of years, I think it was Abraham lived 175 years. His, his father, Isaac, lived 180 years. And at that point, he, he had lived 130 years, and he didn't think he was going to live much farther than his 131st year. He ended up living another 17 years, died at the age of 147. And he was wondering, what, what has my life been? Here was a man who tried to... to, uh, to manipulate his future. You know, Jacob, the one who would catch someone else's heel. Remember, he, he dragged down his brother Esau, jumped over him with a little help from his mom. One who wanted to manipulate his future. But at the end, he began to realize God was bigger than, than his plans. And he was the one whose name was changed from Jacob, the heel snatcher. To Israel, the one who would struggle with God and yet would be the father of a great nation. Story tells that probably when he left the promised land, they might have been about around a hundred strong if you counted everybody. God had promised him that he would go back to the promised land. In fact, when he died, he, he had Joseph make a, you know, a, a vow that he would bury him in the promised land. He might have thought that his people would come back a lot sooner than that. Well, you know, it didn't happen until Moses brought them out of the land of Egypt. And, and there's so many things I want to tell you as far as why God brought them from the promised land to Egypt. But anyway, this hundred people, tribal, marauding family, grew to probably two to two and a half million people. When God brought him back to the promised land. God, God is bigger than the name that we're trying to make for ourselves. And God will make each one of our lives significant as we place our life in his hands. Let's pray. God, this morning, we, we just want to know uh, and proclaim to you that, that, that you are big enough. And as we journey through life, might we just be humbled to the point that all we want to do is just rest in your will and in your plan and the direction of your word so that we don't feel that circumstances are controlling what happens. But there's a God who is sovereign and providential and we can trust him. Father, is anyone who, who still is on the outside looking in this morning, might, might this be a day where they simply say, I'm tired of running my own life. I want to place my life in the hands of the one who came for me. Father, as we continue to worship and as we give unto you, might we just, we just be amazed at the bigness of our God. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen.
Lord.